So we are continuing our study in the book of Genesis. And we've come as far now as chapter 3. Chapter 3 has often been referred to as the seed plot of the entire Bible. But you know, we've got some interesting questions that we need to address as we come into this chapter. Uh, first of all, in the, the very first verse, that the, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord had made. And we want to ask the question, what really does that mean? Why, why was the serpent more subtle? Is that something God had done? Had God intentionally made this creature such that it was able to deceive? Because the, the idea that the, the, the word subtle in the Hebrew is the word arum. It just has this very negative connotation. And the, the word serpent is, is, is nakesh, it's a shining one. There, there's something really interesting about this creature. And see, of course, that behind this creature, we find Satan manipulating, working, and working through this, this creature. Now, we've talked already quite a bit uh, over recent weeks and things about the reason that Satan wanted to deceive man, wanted to bring about the events that we read about in this chapter. And it's quite simply because back in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that Adam was made in the image, in the likeness of God. Satan wasn't, no angelic being was. Adam was made in a higher position, a higher rank, if you like, than any angelic being. And of course, as God is going through this work of creation, Satan, no doubt thinking, that this was all going to be for him, that this world was being prepared and created for him. And suddenly God, in a sense, throws that curveball in on day six when he creates man and says, well, here you go, man, this is for you. Satan clearly outraged because of that. Lucifer was originally his name. Ezekiel 28 tells us he was the anointed cherub. He was of that rank of angelic being known as cherub or cherubim, the cherubim, the plural of the noun. And Satan again had this position of authority. He had this, this right to go and pass before the, the coals in front of the throne of God. We're also told that he was in Eden. He was in Eden in an unfallen state as well. Now, that is interesting because if we join the dots together, it means that Satan didn't fall on day six because Eden is not created until after God has finished the work of creation. Eden is just a garden that God forms and then puts Adam into that garden. At the end of day six, God declares everything very good. You can't call it very good if the very embodiment of evil is running around in this new creation you've just created. So no, I don't believe Satan had fallen at that point. And I actually think that what we see in chapter 3 may well be not just the fall of man, but the fall of Satan as well. Satan, clearly we're told in Ezekiel 28, was in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was his covering. He was perfect, we're told, in all his ways, until iniquity was found in him. Now, day 6, I've got no doubt that in Satan's heart there was that Resentment, anger, jealousy. But you know, having those things there is not necessarily the problem because all of us have emotions, we have temptations. It's what you do with that that's the problem. Of course, Satan acts on those emotions and those feelings and that's what we're going to go on to, to look at. And we find in First Timothy chapter 3 that Satan's sin was pride. And as I've said before, I believe what we've got in the book of Esther is a great model of all of this. That situation with Haman goes into the king's court early one morning. The king had been up all night, couldn't sleep. 
And the king had been reading in the, the archives about this Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, who'd uncovered a plot to assassinate him. And he realizes that actually we've done nothing to reward Mordecai. And he's thinking to himself, I wonder what we could do. And he says, who's outside? Who can I ask advice? And they say, it's arrived. And so they say, well, okay, bring Haman in. So Haman comes in and the king says, what what would the king do for the man whom he delights to honor? And of course, Haman, pride takes over and he thinks, well, the king's talking of me. Who else would the king like to honor? So the whole situation where Haman ends up parading this horse, the king's horse, with Mordecai sat on it through the streets of the city declaring this is what the king does to the man whom he delights to honor. Such a humiliating thing, but the same thing. Just as Haman thought, whom would the king like to honor more than me? So Satan thought, whom else would God want to give this earth to if it's not me? Told, 1 Timothy 3, 6, Satan's sin was pride. And Satan, we told in Isaiah 14, 14, wanted to be like God. Now that's an interesting statement because some people think that he was saying he wanted to be God. No, he didn't. Satan was not that stupid. There's only one God. But Satan wanted to be like God. Adam had been made like God. Satan wanted the role. And so here in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see Satan make a play for that position. He's not bothered about man, doesn't care about man, but he wants this earth that God has created. He wants that authority and that position to be given unto him. And of course, he's successful. Because for now, the kingdoms of this world have been handed over to Satan. In Luke 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan there is in that position of, of offering things. And he says to Jesus, he can give you all the kingdoms of the earth if he would, Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Of course, Jesus just throws scripture back at him. But the reality is Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't make me that offer because you don't have them. No, no, Jesus knew full well that for now, Satan has the kingdoms of this world. He is, for now, the prince of the power of the air. He is the god of this world. That's what we're told in Scripture. There's coming a time when the kingdoms of this world are going to be wrested from the hands of Satan and are going to become Jesus's again. What has God always intended for Jesus to rule over all of creation? That's where we're heading. You know, we've got Genesis 1, Genesis 2. God is creating the world. God makes everything perfect. Genesis 3, the fall of man. And the rest of the Bible is dealing with this problem. Everything else that follows after this is dealing with the problem that we find in this chapter. Now, we've got a couple of other questions. Why did Eve enter into conversation with a talking snake? Ever thought about that? Uh, When and why did Eve sin? Why did Adam follow Eve into sin? Ever thought about that? And why didn't God stop Adam and Eve from falling in the first place? Well, in a sense, that last one's very easy to answer because it comes down to that very simple thing that God has given us free choice. If God had intervened and stopped them from falling and made it not possible for them to fall, well, then they were in effect just robots. They had no option other than to obey. Well, that's not really true love. And God, of course, wanted this relationship with his creation. Not one that they were forced into, but one that they'd willingly chosen. Now, I just think it's interesting, again, just coming back to this issue of the serpent. Now, I just think it's, looking at the the Hebrew words, I think the implication here, that this creature 
had become or been made more subtle. Not, I'm suggesting, of its own volition, but through satanic influence, through the influence of the devil. Because it says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. I see there's kind of almost a a contrast given there. We've got on one hand the things that God has made, and on the other hand we've got this creature. And we're saying the things that God had made are over here, but this creature is more subtle than any of them. It has become such. And I think this again is just the work of the devil in using this creature to, to... Get his job done. Interestingly, in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, we're told there that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. You know, the serpent acted with intent. You know, in Revelation, again, there's a very specific link given between the serpent and the devil. There's no question that we're dealing with the devil here. The fact that he uses a creature seemingly that God had created to do so, well, that results in a very bad outcome for this serpent. We're told that after this, as a result, as we'll see in a while, that this serpent seemingly is changed, that physically he's changed as a result, as part of the curse that comes upon it. Now, I think there's another interesting thing here, and that's the, the question about why would Eve stop and, and talk to this creature? Well, I think probably Eve wasn't taken by surprise. I mean, for us, if a, a, a creature came up and started talking to us, we'd be fairly shocked. We have that account of Balaam in the Old Testament. Which, have you ever noticed that? Balaam is in this position where the donkey starts kind of doing strange things and he starts hitting the donkey. And all of a sudden, the donkey speaks to Balaam. And the first thing that Balaam says is, nay. You not see a kind of paradox there? But we would be surprised if he speaking. But for Eve, she doesn't seem to be surprised. And I think it's quite probably because Eve was already used to Satan. Satan had been in Eden, the garden of God, so it's almost certain that Adam and Eve would have known Satan, but they'd have known Satan as Lucifer. And Lucifer seemingly had come alongside, built to some degree some sort of relationship, such that they're happy to enter into this conversation. But it's interesting that Satan chooses a moment when Adam doesn't seem to be quite around, he's not present, he just takes Eve and starts to try and speak to her. Now, we get to these three words that change everything. And I mean everything. Because Satan speaks and says unto the woman, Yea, has God said? You know, right from this moment throughout the history, that has been the challenge that Satan has brought. Questioning God's word, calling God's word into doubt, making people stop and go, well, actually, did God say that? Is that what God has said? Can we trust what God has said? Those three words are the most damaging, most wicked three words probably that have ever been spoken. So much malice in there. You know, and, and all through history we've seen this where God's word has been called into to doubt and we've come up with all sorts of things through history. You know, in the last few hundred years alone there was something we referred to as the documentary hypothesis the higher criticism and so on, started questioning the Torah, the books of Moses, and started telling us, well, actually, it wasn't that, it was this. God didn't really say that, he said this. Do you know in America, they actually had something called the Jesus Seminar. They got together to vote upon the things that Jesus actually said. They took the Bible and they they voted as to which things they think Jesus did say, and then the other bits they kind of put to one side. Chuck Smith, so many years ago, when he was uh, still with us before he went home to glory, was on a radio interview. 
with an individual. I think Greg Laurie was also on the interview uh, with this person, this professor from the Jesus Seminar. And this individual was talking and, and challenging about certain passages in the New Testament. And Chuck just kind of interjected and said, but hang on, you know, but Jesus said this. And this individual said, yes, but, you know, we now know more than Jesus. <laughs> At which point Chuck said, look, he said, if you think you know more than Jesus, he said, I don't want to be involved in this conversation, hung up the phone and just left the conversation. But that's, that's sadly where modern scholarship and so on has got to. You know, we've, we've said already, you know, we've also got a of translations, so-called, of the Bible that call into question. You know, you look in any modern translation, you'll find a footnote that says, not in the most authoritative manuscripts, not in the best manuscripts, not in the oldest manuscripts. What is that? It's a regurgitation of this lie. Has God said? So many people have been confused because of those kind of comments. Thankfully now, the issue is put to rest. It's no longer a matter of opinion. Thanks to the book, the recent study by Bill Cooper, showing that all of those things are based upon a Vatican-inspired forgery. There is no debate any longer. We need to be absolutely bold and, and honest with this. Modern translations are very dangerous because they have twisted the words of God. They have deleted words of God and have told you that it's not actually in the original. It is. People used to get quite animated about this and get upset and, well, this is what I prefer. Well, you can prefer what you want, but you can't change the truth, and now it's established fact. The Sinaiticus was a forgery produced to lend weight and support to the Vaticanus, which itself was a forgery. Almost all modern translations of the Bible, the New Testament, come from those. And why did the Vatican do it? They wanted to undermine Scripture. Some of you may have seen, but a little while ago, Peter and Diane very kindly gave me a, a very large old Bible. It's fantastic. It goes back to it's 1844. It's about the time all this stuff was going on. And it's incredible. It's a family Bible. The detail, the comments in there, the commentaries are wonderful. You can go to almost any passage and you can read it and as if we're reading a, a study that we've just done recently. You know, they, they really understood what the Bible said. And these were families that were learning about Scripture and getting into the Bible. Now you can understand why the Catholic Church wanted to put a stop to that. That's why they wanted to start to call into doubt, into question what the Bible had said. And they've been very successful in doing so. But it is just a regurgitation. Again, has God said? And at the moment that question is asked, there is that seed of doubt, and there's almost that, that natural implication to try and address the question one way or another. You see, ultimately it's either God's word or man's. Either we believe what God has said and that God has said what he means and means what he says, or it's just a free-for-all. Peter tells us, Peter, the prophecy isn't of any private interpretation. In other words, it's not down to any to come up with what you think. But you know, that really the same can be applied to all of Scripture. Eve's simple failing here really was just to entertain the question in the first place. But let's not be too harsh on Eve because we'd have all been there and we'd have probably all done the same thing. And by the way, she is, at the end of the day, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So, But just want to read this quote to you by... Tozer, 
He said, let a man question the inspiration of the scriptures. And a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter, he judges the word instead of letting the word judge him. He determines what the word should teach instead of permitting it to determine what he should believe. He edits, amends, strikes out, adds at his pleasure. But always he sits above the word and makes it amenable to him instead of kneeling before God and becoming amenable to the word. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. You know, and I've been amazed over the years. People that doubt a certain passage of scripture and say, "Well, I don't believe this or that," or you know, well, which bits do you believe, and why? What's your basis for believing? You know, really, you've got one option, and that's you, or two options: you believe the whole thing, or you reject all of it. You can't take part of the Bible. And the moment that has God said, the moment you doubt any part of God's word whether it's to fit in with culturally relevant things that are going on around us, or whether it's because a certain portion of scripture maybe makes us feel uncomfortable. Well, the moment we do that, the moment we question the inspiration of scripture, as Tozer quite rightly said, that monstrous inversion takes place, and we sit above the word judging what it should say, rather than sitting underneath it humbly and learning to obey. You know, significantly, despite the claims through the ages of... The, the allegations and so on, to the contrary. The Bible has stood the test of time. God's word has never failed. He has preserved his word. And just as we read in Isaiah 40, verse 8, it will stand forever. But that hasn't stopped Satan continuing to ask that question, has God said? And yet many sincere people have given him their ear and ended up doubting God's word. They've questioned what God has said. And ultimately, they've fallen from that simplicity of a childlike faith and been plunged into... Really, a, a life of doubt, not sure what is true and what's not true, what we can take and what we can believe. But you notice the rest of the question. It's a distortion of truth in itself. Has God said, let's just go back to the verse. Has God said that you shall not eat of all the tree, sort of every tree of the garden? Well, that's a distortion. The question itself is wrong. Because God didn't say that. You see, the question is, can't, can you eat of some trees? But the implication here is, has God said you can't eat of any tree? Now, this is, I guess we could argue from a psychological perspective, very clever of the devil. We see the wiles of the devil coming in here. Because it immediately provokes a response, because we want to address the fact that he's got it wrong. And of course, that's exactly what Satan wants to do. You know, Satan wants you to engage in dialogue with him. He's going to throw a question out that he's going to want you to try and respond to or answer. And the moment you enter into dialogue, you're on the back foot. You know, the devil is an alluring and formidable opponent. He was one jump ahead of Eve the whole way through this. And he orchestrated the whole event with precision. You know, and the moment that Eve unwittingly succumbed to this interaction, there really was only one possible outcome. But I want to state very clearly that Eve at this point, was higher than Satan. She had more authority than Satan, provided she was standing on God's word. And and this whole sad affair occurs just simply from that lack of standing on God's word, lack of trusting God. But there was no reason for Eve to be defeated here. But you just again see how the devil roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I've said many times that the devil is like a roaring lion, but he's like a toothless lion. For those who are believers, those who are in Christ, 
We don't need to be fearful of Satan. Yes, he is a wily foe, but at the end of the day, he cannot defeat somebody who is in Christ. And if we're standing on the word, he has nothing. You know, there's that comment that the disciples ask in Luke 18. They, you know, Jesus is talking about salvation and so on. And they, when they heard it, they said, who could be saved? Who then can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with man are possible with God. You know, yes, Eve fell and stumbled at this point. And the question is, well, how can we defeat a foe like Satan if he's so and so wise and so on? Well, it's very simple with the word of God. You know what Psalm 119 says Remember when we're going through it? Through thy commandments, thou hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. They have made me wiser than my teachers, because thy testimonies are my delight. You give me more understanding than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. God says that through his word, you'll get all the wisdom you need. But try and stand apart from God's word. Well, you can't stand. Again, that word subtle. It just, again, it's just a very negative connotation. Satan always goes for the kind of the weak part of our flesh as he went in this instance to Eve. And there's a very interesting thing we'll just highlight in just a moment regarding why, again, I believe Satan went for Eve. Matthew 22, verse 29. The disciples in this situation. But Jesus makes this comment. He says, Jesus answered and said unto them, you do earn not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. This is again speaking, speaking to the Pharisees actually, so the, the religious leaders. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. It's, it's such a dangerous position to be in. We need to understand God's word. We need to allow God's word to permeate our thinking and so on. Now we go on. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, that's another problem, isn't it? Because we have a distortion of what God actually said. God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. God said you mustn't eat it. Now, I want to highlight something that's important here, because... Adam was the one that was given the instruction about this tree, not Eve. Where was Eve when Adam was given the instruction? Not yet formed, not yet created. It was Adam's responsibility to instruct his wife. Do the details matter? Yeah, I think they do. Yeah, you should answer every question that we've got about, do the details matter? I I find it interesting sometimes, people in regard to the Bible, oh, well, that that doesn't matter, you know, the details. It does matter. Just one little detail here, and we'll see why this is so important. Because Eve here, it says, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. That's what's in her mind. That's what she's thinking. It's not what God has said, but that's what she's allowed to to think. Now, is that a failing of Adam in instructing her properly? Did he just give some casual remark to Eve? Oh, by the way, you mustn't eat that one. Just don't touch it. The details really are important when it comes to the things of God. And what we're going to see is that Satan ultimately is going to be proved right in one regard here. Because we're going to see that Eve will touch the fruit. Guess what? She doesn't die. So the moment she's touched the fruit and she didn't die, now that question's there, well, hang on. I haven't died, so maybe I can eat it as well. You see how that leads on? Revelation 22, 18, Proverbs 30, verse 6, make it very clear we should not add to God's words. There's a question, maybe there's a lack of humility here on Eve's part, I don't know. Some commentators suggested, you know, why didn't she just go and get Adam? Well, she didn't need to get Adam, really. She could have just re- resorted to 
what God had said. She could have stuck to God's word, or she could have just not entertained the conversation in the first place. But we go on verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now this is a blatant lie. But of course, because he says that, when she reaches out and touches it, she's going to believe this lie, because it seems to have some credibility. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. Now, once again, this is the first thing. Satan causes doubt of God's word. The second thing is this bold and outright lie to cause uncertainty. Again, that's a good, why not go to Adam? And then there's that kind of dangling the carrot. You know, you'll be wise. Think what it will do for you. You'll become like God's. You know, and that, that's such a sad thing. You know, you can't, that job's already taken. There is already God. You can't become like God in that sense. Not the way that Satan is presenting it here. And yet, sadly, man throughout the ages has wanted to try and see if we can become godlike. But, you know, this is a really, if you, if you start to think about what we're seeing here, we're told in Corinthians that Satan can appear as an angel of light. Seems to be fairly comfortable with the conversation. She's not frightened to be having this conversation. There's a song by a, a Christian band called Petra. The song was called Angel of Light, and it was really all about this statement that we have in Corinthians. It's just said that Satan is an angel of light, but it'll only bring darkness to your soul. But just think, you know, who on earth would ever be so twisted and so cold as just to take, for example, a young child and tell them to put their hand into a fire, knowing full well they would be burnt, would just sear their flesh. I mean, who would do such a horrible thing as that? You'd have to have some really sick person that would do that. But think what is going on here. Because that isn't even as half as wicked as what Satan is trying because he, he knew that in doing this, he would be condemning humanity to hell. Sometimes people don't tend to be too concerned about the devil. Almost that, you know, we can, well, we can kind of get along type. It's just strange ideas and concepts people have. What is hell? Because actually, interestingly enough, I'm not even sure that at this stage, Satan knew much about hell. He may have done, I don't know. But hell ultimately is separation from a perfect, loving God. Yes, it's a real place. It's a place of suffering. It's a place of pain. But the greatest pain is not going to be physical. It's the unimaginable anguish that will be experienced by every soul who ends up condemned to that eternal place of torment on account of Satan's lie in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 you start to realize just how evil and wicked Satan really is. Knowing that by doing this, he, he was just after the earth, but he was happy to condemn humanity to hell. I've said before there was, a, there was an occasion when we were, it was some years ago when Marla was younger, I'm sure it was Marla, not Amita, I think. We were with Matt and Abby, and we'd uh, just gone out to kind of a farm for the day. And we were walking along, and Marla was kind of in a little world of her own, as children often are, and she kind of walked off, and there was kind of a, uh, they had little, little, small little fairground rides, you know, the kind of saucers you go round and round and round and things. And, and Marla kind of started to walk on one side, and we'd all started to walk around the other. And I had my eye on Marla the whole time, I knew exactly where she was. But suddenly she lost sight of us. And she looked up and she looked around, and that look of horror on her face, 
She'd been separated from her parents in her mind. Now, immediately I went straight to her. She started to cry and I picked her up and she was fine. But that's nothing compared to separation from God. We can't even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. The only glimpse in the Bible we have of that is on the cross when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on account of our sin, Jesus endured that separation. As the Father has to turn away. Jesus is the only one so far that has known that horror of separation from God. And Jesus endured it for us. In Romans 6, 16. There's a great verse, it just says, Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Eve had that choice here. You know, we're not, in that sense, free to do whatever we want. There is no middle ground. You're either following after Satan and his lies, or you're following after God. Of course, sensible, the obvious thing is to follow after God, because that leads to life, it leads to blessing. That portion goes on in verse 21 of Romans 6. It says, what fruit had you then in those things of whereof you are now ashamed? Now, of course, this is with the benefit of hindsight for us. But you look back on anything in your life that you've done that you knew was out of line with God. Do you look back on that and go, yeah, you know what, I'm pretty glad I did that. No, you don't. You look back and you, you regret. You wish it could be just stricken from the record. Well, the good news is because of the blood of Christ it can. As far as God is concerned, when he looks at our record... He just sees the good works. He sees the righteous deeds that we've done. He sees the completed work of Christ. He doesn't see our sin. But, you know, there is no fruit in those things of which we were once ashamed. Well, we go on. Verse 6 tells us, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. And guess what? She didn't die. She takes the fruit. So now, well, why not go ahead and eat it? And did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. Now, is there an implication there that Adam was standing there the whole time? Maybe. Because it says, and gave also unto her husband with her. Maybe Adam was there. If he was, why on earth didn't he say something? And then both of them end up eating. Notice what we have here. Good for food, first of all. Well, this is exactly what we find in 1 John 2, 15 and 17. And this is Satan's mode of operation. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here we have these three things. The lust of the flesh. Well, first of all, she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. We're told that she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired. And then we're told of the pride of life. And again, it was desired to make one wise. All of these three things encapsulated. We're told that those things are not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Now I want to just ask another question here. When did Eve actually sin? Was it when she ate of the fruit? Was it when she actually plucked it from the tree? Was it maybe when she first touched it? Or maybe when she merely looked at it? No, no. Eve sinned the moment she rebelled against God in her heart. See, before she even moved her arm, 
In her heart, she'd made that decision. And this is what we're told in Mark 7, 20 to 23. He said, that which comes out of man, that defiles the man. For from, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. That was the problem. It was what has already gone on in the heart. Really what happened after was just the outworking of that decision she'd already made. We then get to the sad state of affairs. We get to verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They'd been naked prior to this and it hadn't been a problem. Something had changed dramatically. And we're told that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. We're going to come back to that in just a moment because this is the beginning of religion. Man's attempt to cover sin. But I just want to highlight something first of all because Romans 5.14 speaks of Adam and Adam's transgression. And we're told that who is the figure of him that was to come. Speaking, of course, of Jesus. We're told that Adam is a type or a model of Jesus. How so? Well, in a number of ways, actually. But this verse from Timothy is very illuminating. 1 Timothy 2.14, it says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Do you get that? Adam ate of the fruit willingly. He knew exactly what he was doing. So why would he do it? Well, first of all, let's just, just go back one step. Ways that Adam is a model or a type of Christ. Well, first of all, he was a direct creation of God in terms of the physical sense, Jesus' body being the same. Of course, Jesus was pre-existent. But then again, Adam was not deceived. And this verse we've just looked at, a figure... You see, Adam realized that once Eve had eaten of the fruit, there was now a big gulf between the two of them. Adam, unfallen. Eve, fallen. Clearly, Adam loved Eve. I mean, remember what we went through in chapter 2 as all these animals, Mr. and Mrs. Dog and Mr. and Mrs. Hippo and so on and so on, all are brought before Adam and he starts to realize the problem and eventually God makes Eve and brings Eve out of Adam and brings him to her. And he goes, whoa, man. So she gets her name, whoa, man. Uh, but Eve was loved by Adam and she's now in this predicament. How can Adam rescue her? Only by joining her. Clearly, we're told Adam was not deceived. That means he knew what he was doing. He knew full well the consequence of doing what he was doing. But unless he joined Eve in her predicament, there was no way of rescuing her. Well, in that, of course, he's a type of Christ because Christ gave up the majesty, the glory of heaven. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that Christ could rescue his bride. Just as Adam seemingly wanted to do for his Now, of course, this all meant that a kinsman was going to be required, somebody who would come and purchase back mankind. And this sets up the scene for the whole of the gospel to follow on from this point. Of course, a number of scriptures that speak of the church being the bride of Christ. There's another interesting thing here, of course, though, because we find in verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. Let me just ask you, first of all, how can you hear a voice walking? Well, they heard the word of God walking. Let me put it that way. Who is the word of God? 
And this is what some commentators will call a, a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. God walking in the, the garden, in the cool of the day. And we're told and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It's amazing how many people think they can do that. They think that if it gets dark or maybe if we're going to get behind a tree, you know, that we can hide from God. You can't hide. Psalm 139 tells us, where can I go from his presence? Where can I flee? Psalmist tells us, you know, we can go to heaven, we can go to Hades. Wherever we go, God's presence is there. That's not hell, by the way, the eternal hell. God's presence will not be there. mentioned earlier. <laughs> so, again, this situation where the Lord God called to Adam and said, where art thou? Do you think God didn't know? Do you think God had lost Adam? Do you think he's kind of like, uh, okay, I can't find you. Give me some help. No. When God asks a question, it's not because he's looking for information. God asks questions to get us to think. And what an important question, because it's the same question that every single one of us is asked by God at some point or other. Where are you? Or what about this morning? Where are you this morning? Are you trying to hide from God? I hope not. Well, what about in one of those smaller little dark, deep recesses of your heart or your mind? Is there something that you're kind of hiding from God? You'd rather not God not talk to you about that? Maybe it's a little lust or a little addiction or a little attitude, feeling, something you don't want to let go of. But where are you this morning? You can't hide these things from God. God knows all things. Adam's response, he just says, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So we find always in scripture that it's God that does the seeking. You notice Adam and Eve hadn't gone back to God. God comes looking for them. We find it, of course, with Adam, as we've just seen. Abraham, God saw Abraham out. He was in the midst of an idol-worshipping culture. Jacob was fleeing from Esau. God goes and seeks Jacob. Moses had fled from Egypt. God goes and seeks Moses. And we could go through the rest of Scripture. There's so many examples. God is always the one, by his grace, who does the seeking. God is the one that has sought and gone after Israel, even though they rejected him. John 15:16, we read, You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. Once again, the shepherd always seeks the sheep. Well, we pick up and he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou should not eat? And the man said, The woman <laughs> who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And notice what he does here. It's, first of all, he's blaming the woman, but then he's blaming God. To me. We always like to try and justify ourselves by looking at someone else and trying to assess their sin. Of course, Adam's held accountable for his own sin, and so is Eve for her sin. You know, blaming somebody else doesn't solve the problem. I read a great quote last night. I'm going to get this right. Why do good things... Sorry, again. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once, and he volunteered for it. Think about that. There are no good people. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There are no good people. The whole question 
why do bad things happen to good people? It's the wrong question because the only time a bad thing happened to a good person was at Calvary. And Jesus volunteered for it because of us. So, verse 16, the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, it's not my fault, it's the serpent. Always trying to blame someone else. But the fact is, as those last four words say, and I did eat. She listened. She gave in. She allowed that doubt regarding God's word to take root in her heart and her mind. And the consequences are catastrophic for humanity. And so we read verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. Now, just as an interesting aside, they have now found evidence that snakes have the ability, or have had the ability to have legs. And the question here is, did Satan have legs? Was the snake uh, at some point in the past, uh, did it have legs? And is part of the curse upon the serpent the fact that it lost legs? I don't know. Not really that bothered in all honesty. Satan certainly, as we said earlier, just manipulated, used this creature, and there's a curse placed upon the creature. But there's a curse placed upon everything as a result of this, upon all creation. And then we read verse 15, and this is, this is the gospel really starts to build from here. That I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall crush thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Oh, this is played out so many ways in Scripture. We see so many models and types. Ultimately, this reaches its climax at the cross. Where Satan thought that he was going to destroy Jesus. And Jesus' feet, of course, are pierced. His hands are pierced. But, you know, there's an incredible thing here as well. Because where Jesus was crucified, the very place on Mount Moriah, the same place that Abraham had almost offered up Isaac before God intervened, but the place that they are standing, this place that we know as Golgotha, was also the place of a skull. Whose skull? Well, you go back all the way into Samuel, and you'll find that when David killed Goliath, he chopped off Goliath's head. And in a bizarre situation, takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and buries it there. Jerusalem was in enemy hands at the time. It belonged to the Jebusites. It's not till later in David's reign, as it were, that he finally... So, David takes this head of this giant and buries it at some location in Jerusalem. What location? Well, it was a location that became known as the place of a skull. And it also bears the name of this great victory that David had because the place becomes known as Golgotha, Goliath of Gath. Jesus literally has his feet above the skull of the enemy in type. In the book of Joshua, we see that when Joshua defeated the enemies, they would put their feet upon their, their necks or on their heads. as declaration of their victory over them. You know, this verse, this is, we didn't read the rest of the verse. Yes, we did, sorry. Okay, so this verse then leads on to Satan's real problem from this point on because he now knows that there is going to be the seed of a woman. Someone is going to come. Now, for Satan, he doesn't know who that's going to be. For Adam and Eve, they don't know who that's going to be. When they have their first children, Cain and Abel, you can imagine everybody looking intently at these two children. Is one of these two children the seed? Well, we find, of course, Abel has this great faith and offers up these sacrifices. We'll look at this next time. So just in case, 
Satan makes sure that he's killed. We, we then get to the time of the flood and we read, of course, that the world had been corrupted because of this infiltration of these fallen angels. And then all the, the problems we see with Abraham's descendants, even with Ishmael and so on. And then the famines in the land and so on. All the way through the Old Testament you find these kind of things. All the firstborn, all, all the male children rather, in, in Egypt. You know, why was Pharaoh so intent? It wasn't just to stop the population. Satan's manipulating the circumstance. He wants to stop the seed of the woman coming. Because of this prophecy that this seed of the woman would ultimately one day crush his head. Pharaoh pursuing after them. All the issues and so on that we read when they went into Canaan. The attacks against David's line. And sometimes we get down to just one surviving member. Jehoram killed all his brothers. The Arabians slew everybody but Ahaziah. Athaliah kills everybody. She thought she's wiped out the line apart from Joash, this young boy. Like about six years old, he's taken away. Hezekiah, again, this attempt by Assyria to wipe out Israel, defeated. Haman's attempts also to destroy all of the Jews. Even when we get to the New Testament, Joseph could so easily have blown the whistle on Mary. She could have been put to death. Herod ultimately killing all those babies in Bethlehem. Satan just trying to stop the Messiah. Even those attempts at Nazareth, Mount Precipice, Jesus is taken to the top of the mountain, they're ready to push Jesus off. Those storms at sea, which is strange because we've got these trained fishermen that are really scared of these things going on. There's something supernatural in the elements there. And then ultimately we get to the cross. Satan didn't realize, of course, that Jesus was going to die pay for our sin. Otherwise, he would have never allowed that to take place. Satan's, of course, not through. We get to the book of Revelation, and Revelation 12 makes it very clear that Satan is still furious because of all that's taken place. Well, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Sorry, and thy conception in sorrow, thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. I'm sorry, ladies, that's the way it is. The bottom line is men have to go and work, we have to till the ground, we have to earn, and the woman's part is that you'll have pain in bearing children. That's part of the curse, it's part of the way things are. God has allowed this for his reasons. Maybe it's just to always bring us back to the predicament. Things are not right now. You haven't got to look far in the world to see that things are not right. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the swell of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou hast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. You see... God had said that if you were to eat of this fruit of this tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. Now, they didn't die physically immediately, but they started to. From this moment, their bodies started to decay. Spiritually, they died at that moment. Galatians 3, though, addresses this situation with the the curse because we're told in Galatians 3.13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse. He took upon himself that which was intended for us. So 
The ground was cursed. Jesus himself made a curse. Man was to eat sorrow all the days of his life. Jesus was made a man of sorrows. The ground was to bring forth thorns and thistles, where Jesus bore a crown of thorns for us. Man was to work and it would be the sweat of his brow. Well, Jesus sweated those drops of blood. We are, our bodies return to the dust. Psalm 22.15 speaks of the dust of death. Death itself being defeated. We're going to find in a moment the sword will bar the way, the entrance to Eden. Zechariah 13.7 speaks of a sword being awakened. You see God undoing all of the things that man had brought about because of the situation. You know, man was to die as a result of this, but we see that change where God, in the person of Jesus, takes upon himself our sin, takes upon that separation that we deserve. As I said earlier, that verse in Matthew 27, why have you forsaken me? So we read, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Now this is interesting. Leviticus 17.11 just speaks of the life of the flesh being in the blood. Notice coats of skins. There are two animals whose lives are ended, whose blood is shed to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. This is the beginning of this sacrificial system where blood was shed as an atonement for sin. Ultimately looking forward to what Christ would accomplish. You know, we see that Adam and Eve made those fig leaves to cover themselves. They recognized they were naked. What had happened was that the glory of God that had previously covered them had suddenly gone. And they suddenly became aware of their own nakedness. Up until that point, yes, they were naked, but it wasn't a problem because they were clothed in the glory of God. And so they make these leaves to cover themselves, to make themselves acceptable to God. That's exactly what they were trying to do. The, the Latin word for a religion is relangere. It means to relink. That's what religion is. It's trying to relink with God. They made leaves so that they would be acceptable by their own efforts. It doesn't work. Sorts of fig leaves that we find. Going to church, so many people think that that will make them right with God. If they go to church, Christmas, Easter, or maybe a couple of other times in the year, they'll be okay. Certain religious exercises that people do. Oh, well, I, I pray. Following certain ordinances or rules. You know, people say, well, I was baptized as a baby, so I'm a Christian. No, no, no. That doesn't relink you with God. Philanthropy, altruism, all these kind of things, personal efforts, whatever you want to try and do. Your effort will never relink you to God because the only way to God is through the cross. The only way to God is through what Jesus has done. Just as we draw to a close, there's two trees, there's two gardens. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's where man's problems began. There was another tree on Calvary's hill. That's where man's problems were solved. We've got the Garden of Eden. That's the place where the battle of will was lost. As Eve gave in, as she entertained the question, as she allowed that thought about doubting God's word. And we've got the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's the place where the battle of will was won. When Jesus three times cried out to the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. So Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. Well, we then read, just to tie off the chapter, 
And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And I think, again, just to clarify, I don't think God is saying that we've got anything special because Satan has said, You'll become like gods. I think God is simply saying that man now has this capacity of knowing good and evil. That's all he's saying. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Do you see what God is saying here? He's going to bring in a way of guarding the other tree. By the way, isn't it bizarre? There was two trees in the garden. The one they take of is the bad one. God's blessing had been there the whole time. Why don't they go and take of that? You've got a tree of life there. And I go, uh, maybe later. Why? But isn't that like us? God's blessings are there for us. And how often do we go, well, yeah, maybe I'll read the Bible later. Let's go and turn the telly on for now. Or, you know, there's an opportunity just to get on our knees and pray. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that later. I'll just, we're the same. It, it, I can't understand why we are like this. But there was a tree there they could have eaten of that would have given them life. And they chose the tree that brought them death. But God, in his mercy, now guards the way to the tree of life. Why? Well, if man had eaten of the tree of life, he'd have been in the condition he was then in for eternity. And God didn't want that to happen. And so, therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So man is banished from the garden. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There is an implication here in the Hebrew and it's not clear in the English that what was placed at the east of the Eden at this point was an altar, a place of sacrifice. And seemingly what we have with the Ark of the Covenant is a replica of this very thing. The mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled with these cherubim standing either end. Seemingly actually depicting what was placed at the entrance to Eden. And we'll talk a bit more next week. But it would seem that Adam understood full well his responsibility now in bringing sacrifices, the shedding of blood to atone for sin. We talked about the days of creation, how we have that Erev and Boker, the evening and the morning, that each day of creation, God adds information to the universe. And we get to the time of the fall, and now everything starts going the other way. It starts winding down. The second law of thermodynamics from a scientific tells us this. Everything is winding down. You know, we had the original creation, it was perfect. Some... Physicists say, say, tell us that the, the universe had ten dimensions. We only know of four at the moment. But there's something that happens at this point. And the universe itself seems to be shattered. And there's so much now we don't understand. We know length, width, height, and time, and so on. But there's so much more. The spiritual world that we don't see, we don't understand. Seemingly Adam and Eve understood and knew and could converse with the spiritual dimensions in ways that we don't yet understand. Ultimately, I believe we will be brought to that place when we get our new bodies, when we have that opportunity of standing before the Lord. So we go from Genesis 3. This is the starting point now of the God's rescue plan for humanity. We'll see it pick up in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham. Then it's 
refined a little bit more. Now we're going to find it comes down to the tribe of Judah, ultimately the family of David, and then down to Mary. Because as again, we said, another tree in another garden. You know, it's been said before, and I just don't end with this. But the Old Testament is the account of a nation. The New Testament is the account of a man. The Creator became a man, and his appearance is the central event in all of history. He died to purchase us and is alive now. And the most exalted privilege is to know him. And that is what the Bible is all about. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the wisdom that we see as we read these things. Lord, the instruction. Lord, we we realize, Lord, how Satan operates, how he will try and subtly cause us to doubt, to ask questions, wants to engage us in conversations. Lord, we use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life to just pull us away from you. And yet, Lord, we have, because your spirit is indwelling us now, Lord, the power overcome all the works of the enemy. So, Father, we pray you help us, if we are tempted, to turn to you. Not to entertain it for a second, but just like Joseph, to flee from iniquity. Father, help us to learn from these things, Lord. Just teach each of us, Lord, the things that we need to understand. Lord, may there be nothing in our life that we try and hide from you. Lord, may we not be trying to make fig leaves to cover off the things. But Lord, just be open. Lord, all things are open to the one with whom we have to do with to Jesus. Lord, we need to be open to you. So Lord, we just pray that you help us to be honest before you, allow you to minister and work in our lives and to transform us, Lord, that we can become like the second Adam. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.